0: Hello, and welcome to the ha Hearts Podcast. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. This week we are trying something new. Israel recently marked 100 days since the shocking attacks of October 7th, which was the opening salvo of a long, painful, and costly war with Hamas and beyond. At Haaretz, we try every day to provide our subscribers and other readers with the best and most timely news and opinion, even more so in wartime. But sometimes, the more you know, the more questions you have. And so, this time, we won't be following our usual format where I ask the questions and bring in experts to provide the answers. Instead, we've asked Haaretz subscribers to send in their questions, nearly all of which naturally center around the current conflict. Then, we invited our top correspondents, editors, and columnists, who live out the news in Israel every day, to answer these questions. We were actually overwhelmed by how many subscribers responded to our invitation, and it's a shame we can't answer all of the questions on this episode. In choosing the questions, we made a special effort to include those on topics that were asked about again and again. To start, the issue that was undisputably on the top of our subscribers' minds was, unsurprisingly, the political fate of the man who is leading the country through the war, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And so here is our first question, which comes from subscriber Giora Haddao.
1: Hello, this is Giora from Southern California. Is there any way to get rid of Netanyahu in the near future?
0: To respond to Gior's question is our Haaretz senior columnist who literally wrote the book on Netanyahu. Well, he wrote a book on Netanyahu. Anshel Pfeffer.
2: Just because prime ministers and governments are deeply unpopular and have lost the public's trust, and there's no doubt that's the case with Netanyahu and his government, it doesn't mean that they can automatically be replaced. For Netanyahu to be forced to leave office, and make no mistake, he will not leave voluntarily, two things need to happen. First, the 12 Knesset members led by Benny Gantz, who were in opposition until the war began and then joined an emergency war government, need to reach the conclusion that the damage being caused by Netanyahu and his coalition remaining in power altogether is greater than the damage of them remaining in power with Gantz and co. inside the cabinet as a restraining measure. This isn't about to happen quite yet, but if the war in Gaza does scale down, As many are expecting to happen in a few weeks and we don't get another war on the northern front, it will be on the cards. Once Gantz's lot leaves, the government will be back to its original 64 Knesset members. If and when five of those 64 are prepared to act openly against Netanyahu, joining the opposition to form a majority against him, There will be two parliamentary options. One is appointing a new prime minister and government in this Knesset, what's called a constructive no-confidence measure. That's unlikely because even if there is a majority of Knesset members prepared to vote against Netanyahu, getting such an extremely diverse majority to agree on who will be the next or the new prime minister will be much more difficult. The more likely scenario is the opposition along with at least five coalition defectors voting to dissolve the Knesset. This will mean an election will take place after the mandatory three-month campaign, during which Netanyahu, who will almost certainly remain Likud leader as no challenger within the party, has sufficient support to unseat him, and his ministers remain as a caretaker government. If the elections result are anything like the polls we're seeing now, Benny Gantz will be able to form a coalition and replace Netanyahu.
0: Another question asked by several subscribers related to the way that Israelis are being exposed or not being exposed to the full extent of the death, destruction, and humanitarian crisis in Gaza through their media. Here's one of the questions from subscriber Elizabeth Benedict.
3: Hi, my name is Liz. I'm an American Jew living in New York City. My grandfather was born in Palestine in 1899, and I have many cousins who've lived in Israel since the 1930s. From what I understand, Israelis see very different news about the war than I do reading American media and Haaretz, an Israeli newspaper. I'm reading devastating articles about what's happening in Gaza and challenges to Israeli military decision-making. Do Israelis not read the New York Times or the Atlantic, which are available online? Are Israeli media not reporting the same stories? Is it due to military censorship or reporting by journalists who want to present a false picture of what's going on. Thank you very much.
0: We asked Haaretz columnist Dr. Dalia Shenlin, who is also a public opinion researcher and political advisor, to answer Liz's question. I
3: don't think it's a matter of media considering themselves friendly so much as very much part of the cause of supporting the general national effort, the war effort, the sense that everybody's together you know, for the first decades of statehood, the media in Israel were theoretically free, but, but you know, all the mainstream media was committed to the state-building effort and Zionism. And we talk about this as the era of journalists or and media outlets that were all just committed. We have a word for it in Hebrew, meguyeset, megouille- And I think that's what we're seeing now. I, I don't think it's military censorship because Israelis can get the kind of images that you're talking about really anywhere in the world. And to that end, I think there's an important point to be made. It's true that the Israeli media gives very little attention to the kinds of images that the rest of the world is seeing about people in Gaza. If anything, the Israeli television channels are showing some footage of the devastation of cities, burned, you know, bombed out buildings. People can get a sense that Gaza is being destroyed, but they're not seeing human suffering. They're not seeing graphic images of people, uh, of course, not the kind of thing you would see in Al Jazeera. And they're not really seeing those human stories behind them. Having said that, we don't live in the same era as the 1950s or 60s. Israelis are well aware of how easy it is to get information. It's not a shutdown environment. And they are very well aware of of the general, you can call them accusations or just the general situation that the world is talking about how devastating this has been for Palestinians. And anybody who wants to, a, it's, it, you, you will see tiny bits on of, it, of it on the Israeli news. I don't agree with uh, the characterization that it's zero coverage, but I do think that it's very, it, not only is it easy for Israelis to find anything that needs to be understood about Gaza from global media, uh, but it, it, sometimes it's unavoidable. The other thing to remember is that often Israeli media covers global media. And so I don't I don't think we should see this as Israelis being completely cut off from the information, even if the Israeli mainstream media is not, certainly not giving it the attention that it is being given in the rest of the world.
0: Our next subscriber question also relates to the media, this time about the way that news is gathered on the Gaza side of the story. Subscriber Robert Vanderwist wrote us and asked, Why are there no Haaretz journalists inside Gaza? While Israeli politicians argue in public and behind the scenes, we can't see anything about what's happening inside Gaza or inside Hamas. Are Haaretz journalists in touch with Hamas representatives? How can you assess what is happening there? To answer his question, here is Haaretz journalist Shireen Farah sab who has been covering developments in Gaza since the beginning of the war.
4: This is a great question, and it connects us uh, to the geographical location and uh, the influence of borders between uh, Israel and uh, Gaza, as we say in Arabic, uh, Ghazi. This is the real life, and there is a lot of uh, complicated uh, reasons uh, why journalists cannot be uh, in Gaza and cover from there. First of all, I should mention that there were reports from uh, several Haaretz and other Israeli journalists uh, from Gaza. Uh, but uh, all the reports and all the journalists uh, was combined by the IDF for security reasons. And there was also a request from foreign journalists to enter Gaza and to cover the war between Hamas and Israel and it was rejected for same security reasons. So in the current war a non Gaza journalist and foreign journalists cannot enter Gaza freely because Israel prevent the entrance to Gaza. Uh, so every journalist who would cover the war from Gaza should uh, be combined by the IDF. There is no other option. Uh, so this is the limits to covering this area. Either also people you can talk with them, uh, and you have to be uh, focused in the specific perspective in it's a very complicated situation a uh, delimitation of the journalist who cannot physically be in the site of the war uh, in Gaza in contrast to uh, other wars for example in Iraq Syria and even Afghanistan uh, that there was a possibility and option for journalists to be there and cover from there and to talk to the citizens uh, of these locations So I think that uh, this prevention uh, that journalists cannot enter uh, together freely to Gaza emphasizes the Israeli control and displays who can enter and who cannot enter to Gaza Strip and when and how. So for the second part uh, of the question... Uh, it's a very important question, really, um, to know what is happening inside Hamas and how we can assess what is happening there and what uh, they are thinking, um, also about the war and everything. Uh, so every journalist has his own sources, and it's very, it's uh, very much depends on the abilities and the connections of uh, the journalists, with Palestinian people in general, and not just in uh, Gaza. Uh, You know, Palestinians live everywhere, so it's very important to understand the Palestinian public discourse, uh, also in the West Bank, Uh, Palestinians who live in Europe and also United States, in the Arab countries, Uh, because if you are very familiar and closer, and you can understand... Deeply, what is uh, happening in the public uh, a Palestinian discourse, you can assess better the Hamas uh, uh, leader statements and uh, what they are saying in, uh, in the interviews. There is also another source, and I think it's very important uh, and should not be underestimated. The interviews of the Hamas leaders and they are published in the Arab media, such as uh, Al Jazeera, uh, Al arabiya and um, it allows us to understand uh, what Hamas uh, leader is uh, thinking. Uh, you know, when Hamas leader is talking in an interview, he also sending a message not just for the Israeli people or the Israeli government, uh, but also his statements is very important uh, to the Arab Arab world and uh, Arab leaders uh, in the Arab countries. Uh, and these messages, they are also statements and very clear uh, reflects that discourse uh, of the Hamas people, so the Arab media uh, and the Arab world, and they quote uh, the interviews and the words and the statements of uh, Ismail Haniya, Khalid Mashal, uh, during their interviews, and they clearly say that Hamas will continue to be part uh, of Gaza and uh, part of uh, the Palestinian uh, leadership in general. So this is just an example that reflects that there is gaps in reporting And um, if it's it's not just about the Western media that doesn't cover deeply the public discourse in the Arab world and the Arab media, uh, that doesn't mean uh, that we cannot uh, know what is happening inside uh, Hamas.
0: The ongoing conflict in Gaza has made an impact around the world. In the United States, where the 2024 presidential election is looming, the Israel-Hamas war is also affecting domestic politics. So we receive several questions from subscribers like this one.
1: Hi, Guy from Leicester. Does Israel have more to fear from hostility among young Democrats or from an autocratic Trump presidency?
0: Answering Guy's question, Haaretz, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief Ben Samuels.
5: Both should be equally alarming for Israeli officials, though the Trump of it all should be more front of mind. As Israel's war continues unabated and Netanyahu thumps his nose at Biden, whether relating to humanitarian aid, civilian casualties, strengthening the Palestinian Authority, the list really goes on, tensions only stand to grow and Israeli officials may be pining for the supposed blank check that Trump may may represent. This is short-sighted for several reasons. First, Trump is notoriously unreliable and fickle. Think back to the days immediately following October 7th, during which he used his initial remarks to criticize the Israeli defense establishment and praise Hezbollah's supposed intelligence. Beyond that, Trump is the walking embodiment of anti-democratic values. Putting the fate of American democracy in his vindictive hands only stands to make the world more unstable, Israel included. This instability will only lead to further American isolation on the world stage. America is increasingly finding itself on an island due to Biden's support for Israel, and America led by Trump will only exacerbate this problem. Beyond this, Trump has been buoyed by the America First ideology and its supporters who are increasingly wary of U.S. involvement in the Middle East, warning that Israel should worry about its own war and the U.S. must only focus on itself. Trump has no ideology. He only cares about telling his base what it wants to hear. The more the Tucker Carlson's and Alex Jones's of the GOP wield their influence, The more Trump will find himself beholden to them. Many of these isolationists, it bears mentioning, are among the most frequent traffickers in anti-Semitism, which has reached new heights in America over the past few months. Trump's victory will only give them further validation, putting Jews in America and around the world at further risk an issue that should cause Israel great concern.
0: And following on the question about U.S. politics is this one from a subscriber who asked a broader question about the Israel-Diaspora relationship in a time of rising anti-Semitism globally. Hi, I'm Laura. I was wondering how
4: Israel can protect diaspora Jews, and should it?
0: We asked Haaretz columnist Alan Pinkas, the former Israeli consul general in New York, to address the question.
1: On the face of it, you know, Israel was established as the uh, um, state of the Jewish people, not not necessarily a Jewish state, but state of the Jewish people, meaning it it has an ideological, almost philosophical responsibility for Jewish lives all over. Practically, however, Jews who live in Argentina or Canada or Britain or Australia, and primarily in the U.S. where the uh, largest uh, Jewish community is, live in those countries, and Israel bears no direct and practical responsibility um, for their safety. However, it would be naive and it would be uh, um, remiss uh, to claim that Israel's actions don't have an effect or don't impact the security of American Jews, as we witnessed in uh, diaspora Jews in general, as we witnessed on, on October 7th. Israel's actions on that day and and the war that ensued had a tremendous effect on both the rise of anti-Semitism and on Jewish sense of security, personal safety, and so on, whether it's in London, Toronto, New York, uh, Buenos Aires, or Sydney. Um, In that respect, Israel's actions do have a bearing on diaspora Jews. And as long as Israel feels that it is the center of of, uh, the Jewish people and the center of Jewish life, which of course is debatable if it is and if it should be, but let's assume that Israel sees itself this way, um, Israel should be cautious and should be cognizant and should be aware uh, much more than it is now on how its actions um, affect diaspora Jews. Now, obviously because of October 7th and the security dimension, we conveniently overlooked other areas where, where Israel has an effect on Jewish life. For example, its dismissal derision and uh, discrimination against reforming conservative Jews. Uh, the question of who's a Jew and who's a rabbi and who can uh, perform conversion. Um, I haven't seen that many uh, uh, you know, diaspora Jews revolt against that. Then in 2023, there was a, um, a constitutional coup instigated by Mr. Netanyahu. And to be honest, even though Israel was uh, um, veering away from liberal democratic values, I've seen very little pushback from diaspora Jews. Um, they said, you know, and I understand the logic of it, of, although I object to it. They said, well, it's an Israeli issue. It's a domestic Israeli uh, problem. It's a democratically elected Israeli government. And although we may not like what this government is trying to do, it's none of our business. Uh, We have issues in Canada. We have issues in the U.S. We have issues in Britain. We have issues in France and elsewhere. Now, in the aftermath of October 7th, uh, the claim that diaspora Jews make that Israel should be, even indirectly, responsible for their... Uh, security seems uh, somewhat strange, given that when we were in the midst of that constitutional coup or judicial overhaul, however you choose to call it, I didn't see a lot of signs of of involvement, a lot of signs of uh, uh, passion, a lot of signs of uh, participation in political party. Yes, we did see some in Houston. I saw some in San Francisco, in New York. Uh, But the Jewish community at large kept away from the issue. So, yeah, um, in terms of Israel-Diaspora relations, uh, we cannot avoid this issue. But no, I don't think that Israel can or should do anything in terms of, um, of Jewish security and Jewish safety in the communities where you live.
0: Our next subscriber question relates to a news story that has dominated Haaretz headlines and the Israeli media over the past week the hearings and the deliberation at the International Court of Justice in The Hague, where South Africa has accused Israel of genocide.
6: Hello, this is Philippa Winkler. I would like to ask Israel didn't abide by the 2004 ICJ ruling in the separation wall. Would it abide by the ICJ's ruling? if it issued an injunction to stop the war on Gaza. Thank you. Aluf
0: Ben, the editor-in-chief of Haaretz and a veteran defense and diplomacy correspondent who has historical perspective on this issue, gave us his answer to Philippa's question.
7: Well, these are not uh, the same exact cases. In 2004, uh, the ICJ issued an advisory opinion requested by the United Nations General Assembly over the legality of Israel's separation barrier in the West Bank that was built to protect Israel from suicide bombings, which were then the main threat emanating from the West Bank, Palestinian cities into Israeli cities. And uh, at that time, many Israelis did not understand the issue because the way it was seen in Israel at the time was that uh, this would be the future border of Israel, and uh, despite constant denials by Prime Minister Sharon and many other officials and experts. Most Israelis saw it as a future border with the Palestinian state. And the idea was to include as many settlement blocks uh, on the Israeli side of the barrier. To the Palestinians, it was different. Some of the barrier partly is wall, partly is, is barbed wire fences, followed the old green line of priest 1967. Uh, in other parts... It included lands that, before its construction, were part of uh, Palestinian villages and towns of the West Bank. And they opposed the map of the barrier. And through the United Nations appealed to the ICJ to give advisory opinion. At that time, Israel rejected the proceeding. It refused to send anyone to represent it in front of the International Court of Justice. And uh, tried to ignore uh, the entire issue. While at the same time, there was, in parallel, there was an appeal in the Israeli Supreme Court by some of the Palestinian landholders or or other NGOs representing them. and And the Supreme Court, led by Chief Justice Aaron Barak, who is now representing Israel as its judge in The Hague, ordered to change some areas in the route of the separation barrier. And uh, which were, were accepted by uh, most of the international community supporting Israel, mostly the United States. And clearly, the issue was not what Hague would say, but what Washington would say. And at that time, there was very close coordination and cooperation between the Bush administration and the Sharon government in Israel. And uh, once the new route of the barrier was accepted by the Bush administration— That was enough for Israel to keep it going. Eventually, the the ICJ issued its advisory opinion, saying that the route of the barrier, wherever it strayed away from the Green Line into the West Bank was illegal, and that Israel should dismantle it and uh, build whatever it wants on its own territory and not in the West Bank. Uh, Israel more or less ignored it, and it had no follow-up. Fast forward to 2024, now Israel is once again facing a proceeding at the International Court of Justice. This time it's a contentious case. It's a dispute in which the court is allowed to issue some kind of ruling or verdict and interim measures. And we have two issues here at stake. One is South Africa, which is the the, the plaintiff here. South Africa's argument that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza in its reprisal for the Hamas attack on October 7th. This would take years to decide, Uh, but legal experts, international law experts argue that it would take at least four years to be discussed at all. So this is not the case in point today. The case in point is a request for interim measures which might include a call for immediate ceasefire in place, a call for extra protection of Palestinian civilians in Gaza, and a call to add more humanitarian aid, including from Israel or via Israel, to the Palestinian civilians in Gaza. Apparently, this this is a much quicker uh, quicker uh, proceeding. It might take uh, a couple of weeks. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu already declared that Israel is not going to stop the war, regardless of what Hague uh, has to say. I don't know what would be the outcome if they, this, they decide to call for a ceasefire, if they decide to call for more humanitarian measures, which is more which is more likely in any event. But in any case, just like in 2004, and I think this is the similarity here, the the real decision for Israel or about the the, the legality or international acceptance of Israeli of Israeli actions is going to be decided in Washington and not in the Hague. And since the Netanyahu government is closely coordinated with the Biden administration since October 7, about anything from uh, humanitarian aid to the Palestinians, to military aid, to Israel, to uh, discussion of war plans and for post-war uh, regime in Gaza, and what have you. If the Biden administration will decide that Israel should agree to a ceasefire or to move forward towards a ceasefire, it will tell Israel so, and Israel would have to decide whether to abide by what Biden has to say or try to defy it and face whatever consequences. So I think in both cases, 2004, 2024, we have an international body, but we have the higher authority from from an Israeli standpoint, which is in Washington and the American administration that would eventually decide what space Israel has for its military action.
0: International interest in the war in Gaza is overwhelming. We at Haaretz certainly know that. One subscriber asked us, Why has the Gaza war captured so much world attention versus that in Yemen, Syria, and now even Ukraine? And why are passions so high about it around the world? Haaretz English editor-in-chief Esther Solomon works hard every day to address
6: that interest. We asked her why she thinks it exists. Well, I suppose the best way to think about this is why does the Israeli-Palestinian conflict get so much attention in the world? Uh, And then we can talk about this conflict in particular. I would first of all say that this conflict is something of a poisoned chalice. It is a region and a conflict that gets so much more attention than other uh, conflicts that also include extreme violence of many kinds and very complicated geopolitics. Everything here is basically larger than life and creates disproportionate repercussions. I think perhaps one of the basic reasons is that there is, unfortunately, in the human psyche, a fascination and a repulsion uh, by regular cycles of violence and death. And unfortunately, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict Uh, provides that in spades. But I think to begin with it would be wrong to forget that we are also actors in some ways in a psychodrama for 60% of the world's population, that is Christians, Muslims and Jews. The Holy Land for all its virtues and sins is obviously it's the site of the events of the Bible some of the events of the Quran, the sites that bear that kind of history are all around us. In fact, Jerusalem may be a flashpoint today, but for thousands of years, it was literally regarded as the center of the world, and it was put in the center of uh, maps in pre-modern times. So this is not a recent um, phenomenon whatsoever. In fact, it's very deep within the psyche of many of the world's major religious traditions. To bring it up to date, it's also uh, the site of religious fundamentalism of quite extreme kinds from all of those same three religious traditions, Jewish fundamentalism, Muslim fundamentalism, and Christian fundamentalism, more in terms of Uh, how it's expressed from uh, its followers uh, abroad, especially in the United States. Now, that's in some ways also part of the reason, as well as geopolitics, which we'll get on to, for why uh, Israel in particular has what is sometimes uh, considered a special relationship with the United States. So that, once the sole uh, superpower of the world, has a special interest Uh, in this part of the world, then that obviously uh, means that everything that happens takes on different kind of significance as well. Beyond uh, thinking about why the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has this kind of religious, cultural uh, feeding into political significance, you have the fact that what is playing out here are themes that are part of a global debate about the political right and left, but also about nation states, about post-colonial thought, about the idea of nationalism itself and self-determination. You have everything from the story of Israel's founding, which includes the end of the ages of empire, the Holocaust, the role of international institutions like the UN, the juxtaposition of independence and the Nakba, about dispossession and exile these are trenchant moral and political conflicts that aren't just uh, didn't just finish in 1948 but have carried on and are also being played out in many other uh, areas in the world as well you have issues of terrorism and state violence you have issues of occupation and settlement and israel and the conflict with the palestinians is also subject to some of the biggest accusations that uh, that are possible in the global political lexicon. You have issues uh, that are summarized as apartheid, ethnic cleansing, and now even genocide with the hearings at the International Court of Justice. More recently in Israel, you've had the issue of what does it mean to be a liberal democracy. You have had the rise of right-wing populism. These are issues that have enormous resonance across the world as well. You have pro-Palestinian activism that has been successful globally, and it is really so much built into uh, popular culture, leftist politics and social media that perhaps only the activism against apartheid in South Africa is vaguely comparable Uh, to its reach. That success has actually led activists that are involved in other conflicts, not least for those in the Arab Muslim world, for instance in Syria or in Yemen, to ask why they've never managed to achieve the same kind of traction as the Palestinian cause. And these days, Ukraine is worried it is losing quite a bit of world focus to uh, the Israel-Palestinian conflict as well. There are centuries and centuries of tropes, images and accusations uh, that depending on your particular bigoted stance can be uh, used to interpret or describe what is happening here. And that's before we've even got to geopolitics, the role of the United States, as we said, the place of the conflict in the Cold War, the role in the oil embargo of the 1970s, more recently the new blocks of Iran and its proxies, the so-called axis of resistance, the status of Israel as a military mini-superpower but its unique relationship with the actual lone superpower of today, the United States, and perhaps what I would call a practical reason is that this is a conflict that is relatively accessible. It has, there are regular eruptions of violence and it's only with international repercussions and really we're only a few hours flight from any major European city. It is not particularly uh, difficult to report, at least from within Israel. Um, there are, it's a very small uh, uh, area that you could cover you know, conflict with Hezbollah on the northern border and get down to the border with Gaza easily in the same day with a stop in Jerusalem if you wanted. Um, so I think that that is part of the fact that unlike some conflicts that take place uh, in places that are far more difficult to get to or have far less uh, inviting conditions for journalists
0: One subscriber had a special interest in targeted assassinations. At several points during the war, key Hamas and Hezbollah figures have been killed, with the finger of responsibility pointed at Israel. Most recently, in the case of the killing of Hamas Deputy Chief Salah al-Arari in Beirut on January 3rd.
4: Hi, this is Shelley calling from Switzerland. I would like to know who makes decisions to kill Hezbollah and Hamas leaders abroad, for instance, in Lebanon, who makes these decisions? Is it the prime minister, the war cabinet? Is it the army or Shin Bet, Mossad?
0: We directed this question to Haaretz journalist Yossi Melman, an expert in intelligence and strategic affairs and the author of Every Spy a Prince, the Complete History of Israel's Intelligence Community.
8: All decisions since the very beginning of uh, the state of Israel uh to take out to eliminate to assassinate leaders or of or terrorist organizations or or just terrorists or Iranian scientists or nazi war criminals have always been approved by the government neither the uh the mossad nor the shinbet nor idf are allowed and has never Execute such a decision to kill people without the approval of the government. In the past, the uh, the process was that the government, uh, the entire uh, government, all cabinet, all ministers, had to approve uh, such a decision. In some cases, in the past, the uh, the, plenarium, the 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 uh, entire government authorized the inner cabinet or the security, defense, military cabinet. And the timing was decided by, by that cabinet. But now the decision is a combination of the war cabinet, the prime minister who is in charge of the organizations which are responsible for ex- executing decisions on that, of that sort, like uh, the Mossad and the Shin Bet, and the defense minister when it comes to um, operations conducted by the IDF and its special forces. So all in all, there are no renegade decisions as it happened in some other countries in the past when security services acted on their own. In the Israeli case, since the first assassination, which was in 1955 against an Egyptian colonel in Gaza, incidentally in Gaza, all of these decisions are approved by the government. So this is also the case now in in the war in Gaza. uh, When there is a decision to assassinate, uh, there was a decision to assassinate Aruri in, in Lebanon. This has been... Approved by uh, by the uh, government, by the prime minister, defense minister, and the war cabinet. I think that the question, "Why didn't Israel use post-Munich Olympic-style assassination to take out Hamas leaders and militants?" Um, contains the the false assumption of many, many, many governments over many, many decades in Israel. Israeli governments, Israeli military structures, uh, security services are in love with the notion of assassinations as it is uh, a solution that would solve all Israeli problems. Over the years, uh, that was a very selective tool. To kill someone was a selective tool and a measure as a last resort. Uh, So... We know from the past that assassinations are not a strategic weapon. They are just a tactical decision. Even when you talk to uh, current and former security chiefs, and I talk to most of them, since Israel was head of the Mossad in the 60s, it is clear that sooner or later, Eliminating a master terrorist or a junior terrorist would not resolve the problem and it's just a tactical measure and it's temporary. Sooner or later, someone else would be replaced. Uh, indeed, in this war, out of their guts, feelings and out of the emotional and confusion state uh, of mind that, that Israeli chiefs of security found themselves after October the 7th, they were talking, including the the head of the security service, uh, Ronen Barr, the Shin Bet, and the head of the Mossad, Dadi Barnea, and Yoav Gallant, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, they were talking about, we would pursue all those involved and, uh, and responsible for the massacre, and we will pursue them whenever they are, uh, including I think it was uh, Netanyahu who said in Qatar and in Turkey where Hamas leaders occasionally have been found shelter. Actually in, in Qatar there is a strong presence of Hamas leadership, Khaled Mashal and, and Ismail ania In Turkey there are some commanders of Hamas who are rotating between Qatar, Turkey and Lebanon. Uh, so they they said it. But uh, I think it was more of an emotional reaction because revenge is not a strategy. And to take revenge sometimes is is important, but it's not uh, a substitute for a coherent long-term thinking. And because of that, I don't see how... uh, how this policy can can be uh, pursued on a major major scale one should make a big difference and differentiate between assassinating uh, people when there is no war which demands which is more complicated demands better intelligence and more uh, considerations about their ramifications diplomatic fallout for example if you operate on a foreign soil like Turkey the Turks would not like uh, they wouldn't like it uh, or in Iran if you operate against scientists in Iran you can people can be caught and then hang and when you use the war as a smoke sc- screen and it it provides you an opportunity to kill someone with a drone or by the air force so that's what happened in the last three months regarding uh, uh, targeted killings or assassinations.
0: And finally, what happens next? What will Israel's future look like? What will Gaza's? Many questions we receive from subscribers related to that, including this one. Previous wars between Israel and her neighbors have led to historic breakthroughs and peace agreements.
3: Others have made things worse and left the region mired in violence for
0: years. Do you see any potential for good coming out of this war for Israelis and Gazans, or a bleaker future? No one can predict the future, but to consider the question of what will happen next, and to bring our podcast full circle, is the journalist who answered our first question, senior columnist Anshel Pfeffer.
2: Those looking to history for crumbs of optimism can find some in the fact that just six years after the devastating Yom Kippur War between Israel and Egypt, President Anwar Sadat arrived in Jerusalem, spoke before the Knesset, and the process that would lead to historic peace agreement between Israel and the largest Arab nation was launched. If you're looking for an even more astonishing example of post-war political pragmatism, go back further in time to 1953 when only eight years after the Holocaust, Israel was signing its first agreements with Germany. So even at the bleakest moment of war, nothing is unthinkable. That said, pragmatism and leaving history behind is something that's a bit easier for governments who engage with each other diplomatically to do. In the case of Israel and the Palestinians, where two nations with conflicting narratives and historic claims to the same strip of land have been in a century-long conflict, which is also to a very large degree a religious conflict, pragmatism and compromise come a lot harder. But don't rule it out. If Rabin and Arafat, who had fought each other for most of their lives, could give it a try with the Oslo Agreement, it can happen again. And if you ask, where are today's Rabin and Arafat? Bear in mind that no one expected Rabin and Arafat to do what they did in Oslo before it actually happened.
0: And that wraps things up for this special edition of Haaretz Podcast. Thanks to all the subscribers who sent in their questions and to the Haaretz journalists who answered them so well. Thanks to my producer and editor, Nara Malkin, and researcher Rachel Fink. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.